we began to talk about the evidence concerning Jesus and his resurrection from the grave. We believe that the evidence clearly proves that Jesus rose from the grave. In our series of studies, which we've been doing on Sundays in June, we've been emphasizing evidence. Evidence says, evidence tells us that these things are true. We've talked about the existence of God, about his creative work. We've talked about the Bible as his inspired work. Today, we're dealing with a very important subject of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I really want to stress to you that we're basing this upon evidence. This is not just, I think so. It's just, it's not just, it's my opinion that. It's not that sort of thing. And neither is it what our skeptics often accuse us of, taking a blind leap of faith. You know, the, the idea of skeptics is that there's no proof. And, and, and so you just sort of have to close your eyes and just say, okay, I believe it anyway. Even though it can't be proved, even though there is no evidence, you just have to take this blind leap of faith and accept it as being so. No, that's not right. That is absolutely not true. There's, there is good and powerful and convincing evidence concerning the things that we believe uh, about God, about His creation, about His Word, and about the resurrection. As we said this morning, the resurrection is so absolutely critical to our faith. It is so important for us to be able to say with certainty and confidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And so we want to continue our study tonight. Thanks for being here. We appreciate you very much. Uh, although very hot, we had a good day, uh, a, a beautiful Lord's Day here, and a great chance to be together with fellow Christians. Thanks for being here. Thanks for your participation. And thanks for your interest, interest in spiritual things. To our visitors tonight, we greet you and uh, certainly invite you to come back at your very next earliest opportunity. Let's talk about the evidence. Let's talk about the evidence of the resurrection. This morning, just a quick recap. This morning we talked about the death of Jesus. And the reason why, as we said, that we need to do that is, first of all, because we need to constantly be reminded of the sacrificial death that Jesus died on the cross. That's valuable to us. But from, a, from the standpoint of evidence, before you could have a resurrection, you have to have a dead man, right? Before a man could be raised from the dead, he has to be dead. Now, we're going to see a little later in our study tonight, skeptics have tried to claim Jesus didn't really die. But based upon our study from this morning, it's clear he was definitely dead on the cross of Calvary when they took him down. He was dead. And so we talked about the, the death of Jesus. We talked about the accumulation of things that happened to him even before he was taken and nailed to the cross at Calvary. So much emotional trauma, so much physical torture that he endured before he was ever nailed to the cross. Then we talked about the crucifixion itself and the, and the horrors that it worked on the human body. And then we talked about how his body was treated even after he had died. He was still on the cross, but remember that Roman soldier thrust his spear into Jesus' side and blood and water came out. Clearly, Jesus was dead. So let's continue our study now, talking about what was done with the body of Jesus after he died on the cross. First of all, let's talk about the tomb where Jesus was buried. In John chapter 19, verse 41... It says, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. A couple of things here that I want to point out to you. First of all, is that this tomb was in the immediate proximity of the place where Jesus was crucified. That's important. That's important for the purposes of verification. 
the people in that immediate time frame would have the opportunity to go to this tomb where Jesus was buried and to observe that it was empty and so forth. It would have been different if the disciples of Jesus had gotten a hold of the body of Jesus and they carted it way off into some distant, remote, wilderness place. And then several weeks later, they came back and tried to report in Jerusalem, hey, guess what? We took the body of Jesus out there. Admittedly, it was several days' journey to where we buried him, but we buried him out there, and lo and behold, his, his body's not there anymore. And, and someone said, well, where was that place? Well, we don't know. It's way off there someplace, way off out there in some desert place. No, that's not the case here. Remember that the place where they crucified Jesus was just outside the wall of Jerusalem, and the tomb where they buried him was right there too. So that anybody who wanted to investigate the claims of a resurrection, who wanted to see that empty tomb, you could make a short walk outside the wall of Jerusalem. You could be there to check it out yourself. So this is an important bit of information in regards to being able to confirm the resurrection, as we will see. Also, it was a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid, which is interesting. Now, you know that the Jews, when they when they had a sepulcher or a burying place, they buried people. They buried a lot of people there. It wasn't just one person per tomb. This would be like a family burying place. And so for maybe several generations, people who died in that family would be buried in this sepulcher. And so it would literally have the the skeletal remains of many people who had been buried in a sepulcher if it had been in use for a long time. This one was not like that. This was a new sepulcher. No one had ever been buried in this tomb before. Well, that and it's, therefore it made it easy when they went out there on the first day of the week and found it empty. Well, the only the only bones that could have been missing, the only uh, corpse that could have been missing from that place was the body of Jesus because nobody else had ever been buried there. Now. Luke adds some information also about the tomb. In Luke 23:53, it says they, they laid his body in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. Emphasize here that this sepulcher was carved out of a solid stone or rock wall, a bluff, if you will, of some kind or another, a natural rock wall. Now, that's important. Uh, we know that the Jews frequently used caves as tombs or sepulchers or burying places. Can you think of a famous one in the Old Testament? Abraham buried Sarah in the, in the cave of Machpelah, right? And so we know that the Jews used caves. This was not a cave. Now, why is that important to us? Well, because caves can have more than one entrance. I don't know how many of you have ever done any spelunking. I did a little once and I'm not going to do any more. But you know that with natural caves, there may be more than one entrance into the cave itself. And so if this tomb had been a cave, the the skeptics or doubters could have said, well, yeah, they sealed up the entrance to the cave, But the disciples knew a secret back entrance into that cave system and they came in from the back and got the body and went out, right? They could have made that accusation if it was a cave. This was not a cave. And we're given the information that someone, uh, 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 apparently at the instruction and expense of Joseph of Arimathea, had gone to this solid rock wall and dug it out, actually chiseled out the rock and made a cavity in that solid rock wall where they could bury Jesus. That's important. That's another little piece of information that is important to us when we're considering the claims and proof of the resurrection. 
So first of all, we know the tomb and we know what it was like. Let's talk also about the burial methods, how they would have handled the body and how they would have treated it. In the text that Ethan read for us earlier from John 19, beginning verse 38, it says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea and also Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. This myrrh and aloes that they used, uh, sometimes they referred to as spices. Well, when I think spices, I think just a little, you know. I, I think of those little tins that Cindy has on the shelf in the kitchen, you know, and, and they're about that big, you know, and, and you just use a pinch of them at a time, you know, and maybe one little can of them will last, you know, for a year or two. Because you don't use many of those uh, spices. That's what we think of when we think of spices. That's not what this was. Myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Now there's some, there's some disagreement about the conversion factors here, about a hundred pound weight, but almost every commentator that you read after would suggest that this was on the order of at least 75 pounds worth of these spices, myrrh and aloes. Myrrh and aloes were a fragrant, uh, substance, but also a tarry, sort of a, you ever climb, you ever climb up in a, in a pine tree? Uh, you'll wish you hadn't after you did because you get that sticky sap on you and you can't get that stuff off. It won't wash off with water. You almost have to wear that off. And this myrrh and aloes combination was like that. It was like a pine tar almost. And so what they would do with that is, as it says here, they would wind the body in linen clothes with the spices. So they would take strips of linen and they would start at the at, at the feet of the of the body, and they would begin winding those strips of linen around the body, folding in as they wound this tarry, sticky substance. And they would wind the body up to under the armpits. Then they would lower the arm, start again below the fingertips, wind again up to the neck. We know from the scriptures that it says that Jesus had a separate cloth uh, around his head. But what you would end up with was nearly airtight of the body. I mean, you'd have these linen strips and you'd have this sticky, tarry substance holding it all together. It would look like what we might picture as a mummy, right? Now, it wasn't really a mummy because the body was not embalmed. The Egyptians embalmed bodies. The Jews did not. But the body would be wound up in these linen clothes and it would all be stuck together with those sticky spices. Alright, so we know where he was buried, how he was buried, we know the methods that were used. Then we gotta talk about something else they did. Uh, it's, they, they rolled, they put the body in the tomb, and then they put a huge stone, uh, at the entrance to the tomb. In Mark chapter 15 verse 46, it says he brought fine linen, that's Joseph of Arimathea, brought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. If you were going to sort of picture what that might have looked like, it would look something like this. And there, there are, in fact, archaeological discoveries of tombs in the Jerusalem area that were made this way. You'd have the, the opening dug out in the rock wall, then you'd have this huge stone and it would be in a, in a trough with, that would allow it to roll right to the entrance of that, of that uh, 
sepulcher. And so the stone would have been probably wedged up here, uh, ready to be placed in front of the sepulcher. When they placed the body inside, they removed whatever was wedging it in place and allowed the stone almost by its own gravitation to, to roll to the, to its resting place in front of that sepulcher. Now, a stone that big has got to weigh a lot if you stop to think about it. And, and actually that's been studied. Engineers from Georgia Tech went over to Palestine and they, and they took samples and they did some study about the rocks that are indigenous to that area. And they did some calculating. And they suggested that, I mean, you, how, how big is that opening going to be, right? How, how big would an opening have to be into a cavity within this solid rock wall? Well, I'll tell you something. If I'm digging that out of solid rock, I'm not going to make it any bigger than I have to, right? But it has to be big enough that a man or a couple of men, two or three or four men, carrying a dead body can get in there, right? And so they calculated that, that that opening into that rock wall would have had to have been maybe four and a half feet tall. And therefore they calculated the size of a rock that it would take to cover that opening. And therefore, based upon the density of rock in that area, they came to the conclusion that that rock would have weighed on the order of one and a half to two tons. That's a big rock. It's huge. In fact, you may remember that on the first day of the week when the women went back out to the tomb site with the purpose of adding additional spices to the body of Jesus, they were worried, who's going to roll that rock away for us? Because it was very large, they say. They, they knew they wouldn't be able to do it, but they were going anyway. All right. A huge stone was placed at the entrance of the grave. So, here's the burial of Jesus. The nature of the tomb itself, the way they prepared the body, and the way they closed up the sepulcher with a huge stone, all important aspects of information that we need to prove the resurrection. Now let's talk about some security precautions that were put in place. Some, some security that was, was at the site. In Matthew chapter 27, beginning verse 62, <clears throat> it says, The chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said... Now, they're talking about Jesus. Of course, he was no deceiver, but that's the way they represented him. Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now, a couple of things to point out here. First of all, we would talk about this watch that was set. Apparently, these uh, at, uh, at Pilate's instruction, they were given a, a, a contingency of Roman soldiers to guard the tomb. Now, if you've ever seen pictures of the tomb site was where Jesus was buried, I think it's, they, they are typically pretty inaccurate because they usually show this garden type setting with the sepulcher and the stone, but they maybe show one Roman soldier standing there guarding it, or, or at most two. Uh, that's very unlikely. Romans did not assign an insufficient number of men to guard anything. Uh, and most who have studied their methods and the means of the Roman military has suggested that surely there would have been on the order of at least 16 men who would have been guarding this place in in rotating shifts throughout the 24 hours of a day. Uh, and so they would all be there, uh, may, probably uh, a, a, a certain part of them, maybe four of them, guarding 
the others in the vicinity waiting for their shift to come around. But many soldiers would have been there guarding. Notice also that it says they sealed the tomb. I don't know anybody who knows for sure how this would have been done, but it would have been something on the on the nature of what folks used to do when they send a letter by the mail. You know how they when you used to send a letter, in order to ensure that what was inside wasn't tampered with, you'd take a bit of wax from a candle and you'd drip it on the flap of the envelope, and then you'd mark it with a stamp it while the while the wax is still hot. You would stamp it with a with a, a special designed stamp leaving your unique pattern on that wax. Now, if somebody tampers with that, if someone opens the envelope, they can remelt the wax, but they don't have your unique stamp, and therefore they can't stamp it back like you had it. What's the purpose of that? Well, you know whether or not somebody's tampered with what's inside or not. You know whether it's been secure. That's the idea here with him sealing the stone that, that was at the mouth of the tomb where Jesus was buried. Somehow or another, they marked it so that it would be obvious whether or not it had been tampered with. And so they set the, set the, the watch and sealed the stone. Alright, now again, emphasize these were Roman guards. Roman guards under strict discipline... Roman guards don't fail to do their job. Roman guards, if they failed to keep an assigned post, were immediately subject to death. Not long ago when we've been studying in the book of Acts on Sunday morning, you remember in Acts chapter 12, where Peter had been kept in prison, but an angel of the Lord came and helped him escape uh, through the night. And the next morning when Herod called for Peter and, and they found out that he was not in the prison, the guards were questioned and executed because they had failed to keep their assigned duty. That's the kind of guards. These are not... <clears throat> these are not... Now, I remember when my kids were in high school, they were some security guards that the school system hired to patrol and watch the parking lot, and the kids called them rent-a-cops. These were not rent-a-cops guarding the tomb of Jesus. These were highly trained Roman soldiers. They were not going to be negligent in their duty. Uh, furthermore, there was this Roman seal, the, the nature of which we do not know the particulars, but we do know that it was there to guarantee no foul play. It's interesting to me that these security precautions that the Jews asked for actually help us. They actually turn out to our benefit because we're able, because of those security precautions, to know whether or not there was any foul play at the site of Jesus' tomb. Alright, now then, let's start talking about the actual evidence that the resurrection took place. First of all, let's talk about the fact that the tomb of Jesus was definitely empty on that first day of the week. If you will, go with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, and begin reading at verse 1. It's a little longer reading, but it's worth it. Matthew 28, beginning verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to the sea the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. 
Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There ye shall see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch, that is the guards, right? Some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. All right. Now, I have a very simple question to ask you. The empty tomb. Who said, who said the tomb was empty on that first day of the week? Well, the disciples of Jesus said it was empty, right? Specifically, some of the women went out there and found the empty tomb. Other, we know from other accounts that also some of the, the men ran out there to investigate. But it was the disciples of Jesus saying the tomb was empty. Well, yes, that's right. But it wasn't just the disciples, right? Who else said the tomb was empty? Well, the Roman soldiers said the tomb was empty, right? The Roman soldiers went into town and, and consulted with the Jewish authorities and told them what had happened. And, and so the Roman soldiers said the tomb was empty. Who else said it? Well, the Jewish leaders acknowledged the empty tomb right to, as well, right? Because they paid the soldiers a bribe to lie about what happened. So let me ask you something. Is there any doubt in your mind that the tomb of Jesus was empty on that first day of the week? There's no doubt about it at all, right? Because everybody involved admitted the tomb was empty. That, that, that's, that's beyond question. Um, legal experts call this positive evidence from a hostile source. And the point of that is, when someone admits something that is not in their interest to admit, then it's, it's taken as fact. And when the Romans and the Jews admitted the tomb was empty, then that's fact. The, the tomb of Jesus was empty. All right. Now, we've got an empty tomb. Then we have a number of eyewitnesses who say that they saw Jesus. Not only was he not in the tomb anymore, but a whole host of witnesses acknowledged that they saw Jesus alive. How many? Well, you know this text, don't you? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul enumerates the ones who saw Jesus following the resurrection. And it wasn't just one or two or ten. It wasn't just a few dozen. It was hundreds. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning verse 3, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, He was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, He was seen of me also as one born out of due time. And so more than 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. That's compelling evidence when you have that many eyewitnesses. And I think it's very interesting that Paul says about those 500, the greater part remain unto this present there in verse 6, 
but some are fallen asleep. A few. In between the time the resurrection had happened and when the book of 1 Corinthians was written, a few of those witnesses had died, but the vast majority of them are still alive. And basically, Paul is saying they're available for you to go and question if you want to. They're still alive, and they can tell you what they saw. Skeptics have claimed that this notion of a resurrection was unheard of in the first century. And it was only after several centuries that Christians began to dream up this idea of a resurrection. Well, that's obviously not true, right? The story of the resurrection was being circulated immediately upon it happening. And eyewitnesses were giving their testimony concerning the fact that they had seen the resurrected Savior. Well, what else do we have by way of proof? I think, to me, the most amazing evidence of the resurrection is in the changed lives of the disciples. Do you remember we referenced Matthew 26, verse 56, where when Jesus was arrested, it says, all the disciples forsook him and fled. I've mentioned this before, but I, I, don't, I don't think it's too harsh to say that if you wanted to represent the disciples at the point of Jesus' arrest leading up to his crucifixion, it would be fair to call them cowardly deserters. Now, I'm not saying I would have been any better than that. I think I'd have been running faster than the rest of them, probably. But it is true to say the disciples of Jesus were cowardly deserters at the point where he was arrested leading up to his crucifixion. Now, notice what happened shortly after the resurrection. You remember Jesus appeared to his, uh, all those eyewitnesses, including his apostles, and then he ascended to heaven. And they began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 to preach and teach about Jesus as the resurrected Savior. And not long after that, they began to be questioned and challenged by the same Jewish authorities who had caused Jesus to be crucified. Now, these are the very same guys who had, who had caused Jesus to be crucified. Notice in Acts chapter 4, beginning verse 18, they, this council of the Jews, called them, the disciples of Jesus, and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so in the face of these very same Jews who had caused Jesus to be crucified, these disciples, including Peter, by the way, who had been so cowardly before, now say, we've got to talk about it. You, you, can, tell, you can say, hush, if you want to, but we can't hush. You can tell us to stop talking if you want to, but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They are unafraid now. They're willing to, to suffer whatever persecution comes their way. What changed them? Why are they now different? I would submit to you the only explanation for that is the resurrection. The only thing that could have changed them in that way is that they'd seen the resurrected Savior and now you can't stop them from talking about what they had personally witnessed. I think it's the only thing that could explain their changed lives. So, we have the death of Jesus. Certainly, he was dead on the cross. They took his body down and buried it in the unique fashion of the Jews. They placed it in that new tomb and rolled a rock to the entrance. The, the, the Romans themselves provided security at the site. We have evidence of the resurrection in the empty tomb, which everybody agrees to be so. The tomb was definitely empty. The witnesses who saw Jesus alive, over 500 of them, 
and I think, to me, most compelling of all, the changed lives of those disciples. Before we can end this study, though, quickly we have to answer a few arguments that are posed by the skeptics. When we talk about Jesus as our resurrected Savior, there are going to be some who try desperately to disprove the resurrection. They feel a strong need. Well, yeah, they do need to. If they're going to be able to destroy Christianity, they've got to take away our resurrected Savior. And so the skeptics and doubters and the critics have always known that. And so they, they have always tried to disprove the resurrection. One of the arguments they make is that the body of Jesus was stolen by the disciples. That the reason why the tomb was empty was because the disciples of Jesus stole his body. You know how old that argument is? It's as old as the day of the resurrection. Because did you remember in our reading when we read there in Matthew 28, uh, the elders and the, the Jewish leaders took counsel and they gave large money to the soldiers saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews to this day. And so the argument or the, or the attempt to disprove the resurrection by saying that the body was stolen by the disciples started that very day, right? Now, to anybody who would like to suggest that, I'd like to ask a couple of questions. How did they do that? How did they do that? How did they steal the body of Jesus? Remember how we described the tomb? There's only one way in, one way out. The, the rock, the huge rock, maybe one and a half or two ton rock is blocking the doorway into the tomb. The Roman soldiers are out there. Uh, the Roman soldiers were bribed into saying, we fell asleep. And while we were sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body away. You see anything wrong with that story? You see anything wrong with the story, we fell asleep, his disciples came and stole away? Well, here's one big problem with that. How do sleeping men tell what happened while they were asleep, right? If they were really asleep, how do they know the disciples of Jesus came and stole away? Sleeping men cannot give testimony as to what happened while they were asleep. Right? So that, that's, that's, a, that's a faulty story at its very basis, isn't it? But let's, let's say that it was true. They fell asleep. Not likely that a bunch of Roman soldiers would all fall asleep on an assigned guard duty, but let's say that they did. Then, if that's the case, the disciples have to come there. They have to tippy-toe past the guards without waking them up. Got to roll that huge stone out of the way without making any noise to wake the, the soldiers up. They got to get the body of Jesus. They got to haul it out of that tomb. Oh, wait a minute. Before they did that, they took time to unwrap the, the linen clothes, because you remember, those were left behind in the tomb, right? When, when the, uh, the disciples came to see it, they, 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 the grave clothes were still there. So, in, 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 this, um, in this situation, they took the time to unwrap, or unwrap the body, then haul it out of there, again, getting back past those sleeping guards without waking them up. My question is, how in the world could they do that? Uh, that would, that, that's, that's impossible, right? But I tell you, the bigger question is, why would they do it? Why? Why would they do that? Well, someone suggests, uh, maybe they had this idea. 
Yeah, let me pose the scenario. It's all tongue in cheek and obviously faulty, but let me let me suggest this kind of scenario. Peter gets up in front of the other apostles and say, "Men, we got a problem here. Jesus is dead. Oh, he's dead. I mean, he's dead. He's not coming back. He's dead." But I got an idea. I got this idea that if we could get a hold of that body of Jesus, we'll throw it away someplace. We'll discard it. And we'll begin to tell a story that we saw him again. We saw him alive. I've got an idea that if we can convince people of us uh, that, uh, that we saw this, if we can convince people of it, we'll get famous. And potentially we could even make money telling our story. Maybe people start giving money to us. Let's do it. And so Peter, Peter poses, I'm, I'm making this all up, obviously. Peter, Peter poses that possibility to the other disciples. The other disciples go, hmm, I think it, I think, I'm in. I, count me in. I, I'll join you in that fabricated story of the resurrection. So they start telling the story of the resurrection. But it doesn't work. It backfires badly. Instead of getting rich and famous, they start getting beaten, thrown in jail, and executed. They make no money. They lose everything. But what happens? They keep telling the story. They keep telling that story. You know, if it was a lie, if it was completely fabricated, if they had in fact stolen the body of Jesus and they knew where it was, they, they disposed of it, why would they keep telling that story? I want to tell you, if I'm one of those disciples... After an instance or two of being beaten and thrown in jail, I'd go say, hey, Peter, I'm out. I'm out. This is not working. Forget it. It was, a, it was a bad plan to start with, and now it's proven to be just absolutely a disaster. I'm out, right? But they didn't do that. They kept right on telling the story. I'm going to tell you, that doesn't explain the resurrection at all, does it? That just doesn't explain the resurrection at all. Real quickly, one more thing that has been suggested by the skeptics and the doubters is that Jesus wasn't really dead on the cross. Now, we spent our whole time this morning talking about all the things that happened to the body of Jesus. There's just no doubt. Nobody, I don't think anybody could seriously consider the information and say that Jesus was still alive when they took him down from the cross. But that's what some try to claim. They try to claim that Jesus was really badly injured. Obviously, he was near the point of death, but he wasn't really dead. Now, again, that's, that's just impossible to believe, but especially considering that Roman soldier thrust his spear into the side of Jesus and all of that. But they say Jesus wasn't really dead. He was almost dead, and his life, his vitals were so weak that you couldn't measure them. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't detect a heartbeat. You couldn't detect any respiration. He was very near death. And they took him down. And they buried him in the tomb. But in that tomb, he sort of came to himself. He revived. You know, it was, it was, it was cool and dark and damp. And he, he sort of revived in there. And he got out of the tomb. And then he began to tell the lie. He came up with a lie. I'm resurrected from the dead. What do you think about that story? That Jesus wasn't really dead. He, this is called the swooned theory. He didn't die on the cross. He swooned. He appeared to be dead, but he wasn't. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, it denies everything that we talked about in our study this morning, doesn't it? There's just no way anybody could have survived all of that trauma that we described in our lesson this morning. But let's say that he did. 
Just for sake of argument, let's say that he did. He was very nearly dead. Then they wrapped him up in those grave clothes and bound him up in a nearly airtight encasement of all those linen clothes with the, with the tarry, sticky spices. They put him in that tomb. Okay, we're supposed to believe this. He, in the tomb, he revives. But he, he, he's still very weakened, right? He's been beaten nearly to death with the scourge and all, the severe blood loss and all that. He's, if he was alive, he'd be so weak he couldn't hardly uh, you know, do anything. But we're supposed to believe he, he fought his way single-handedly, without assistance. He fought his way out of those grave clothes. Then, oh, that rock. We're supposed to believe that from the inside of the tomb, Jesus was able to roll the rock out of the way and then get out past the Roman soldiers without them detecting him. All of that is just impossible, right? That, that whole argument just fails miserably. There is no reasonable explanation other than Jesus arose from the dead. Jesus is our risen Savior. We've been ending all of our studies by asking the simple question, if the evidence says that, and it does, if the evidence is compelling that Jesus rose from the grave, what should I do? Well, it only makes sense that we would learn and obey. Learn what we're instructed to do in the pages of the New Testament and submit ourselves in humble obedience to the instructions of God's Word. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus is our risen Savior. Those facts are clear and positive. The evidence says so. Not just some blind leap of faith. The evidence says Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical then to ignore what he tells us to do. Common sense and good reason says since that's true, then I need to obey him. I need to do what I've been instructed to do in the pages of God's Word. The simple gospel plan of salvation is here, believe, believe based upon the evidence, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, and be baptized for the remission of sins. Will you do that tonight if you've never done that? Will you make that decision and commitment? It is the right thing to do based upon the evidence. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, think about Jesus, your Savior. Think about all that He suffered. Make your life right with God. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song.